In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I'm speaking with Randy Baker. Randy is the parent of current Patriot Cameron Baker, class of 2022, and Patriot alumnus Charlie Baker, class of 2015. Randy is a serial entrepreneur and is the founder and CEO of MedCal Advisors. Beyond his role as a parent and CEO, Randy also serves on the advisory board for a local nonprofit working to reduce situational homelessness. Randy, thanks for being with us today. Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. So, Randy, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you being here. The first question I have is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Wilson, North Carolina. It's a little town east of Raleigh, around 45,000, 50,000 people. Typical middle-class childhood, working family, lots of friends running around the neighborhood. It was all good. So what did you like to do as a kid? What were some of your things you loved to do? We basically dropped everything after school and hit the neighborhood and just house to house and running around, around wild until dark till your mom called you to come home and time to do your homework and, and have dinner. What are some of your fondest memories of school and what were some of your challenges? My fondest memories were really my friends and the relationships and the closeness we had in the community. In the early days, we were able to walk to school. And so we walked as a group and spent a lot of time together. I think the, the challenges for me as a student were all the distractions that were outside of school had to concentrate hard to get focused on getting the work done. And what was North Carolina like at that time? I mean, it's changed so much even just recently. It was a great time. I mean, it was very much community oriented. You know, you know everybody in your neighborhood, all the mothers know all the kids, and you may wind up at someone else's dinner table at night just because you were there and the time was right. And your mother never worried about who you were because she knew somebody had an eye on you. And then what was the first job you ever had? The first job I ever had was in a tobacco field. I was cropping tobacco, which I know a lot of folks here may not even know what that is. But if you've ever done that, you ever worked in a tobacco field, it'll truly make you appreciate a real job when you get one. It's a demanding job. And what was the day-to-day doing that? 5.30 in the morning, got picked up by the farmer's wife, uh, drove about 25 minutes to the field, I remember, you know, sitting down at a little harvester, which are just above the ground, and the dew is on the tobacco leaves, and you honestly think you're going to freeze first thing in the morning. And then after lunch, you know, when the sun bakes, you feel like you're you know, you're going to die in the afternoon because of the, the, the heat. But it's uh, really make you a, a appreciate uh, working hard for a living. And was that a summer job you had? It was. It lasted, you know, probably 60 to 75 days during the summer. And what led you to Davidson Day? I think we had our first exposure to the private school environment at a, at a school called the Bright School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my oldest daughter, Charlie, who graduated from Davidson Day, started in a program there called Bright Start. And I think seeing the 
academic discipline that was imposed on the kids at such an early age and teaching them that you have a lot of responsibility as a student. And the thing that, that caught my attention is, you know, by the second year she was there and they were really learning to write, the teachers would come in and write the assignment on the board first thing in the morning for the day. And if the kids didn't write it down, they didn't get it. It was on them to go and get it. And I think that teaching that responsibility at an, a personal responsibility at such an early age made an impression on me coming from a public school environment. And so when we uh, came back to North Carolina, because we had just moved out for a while, we were searching for the, a, a smaller school environment that was committed to the academics. So you're now CEO of MedCal Advisors. What was your path to, from growing up to this point in your career? Well, that would take an entirely different podcast, but, uh, you know, I'm a, a serial entrepreneur, a lifetime of starting companies, acquired a couple of companies and tried to turn them around, had successes, had failures, always looking to do something, always look at everything from a contrarian point of view. Anything I looked at, I was trying to figure out a different way to do it for some reason and really got interested in telemedicine back at the inception of the Affordable Care Act. It just seemed like it had the potential to be a train wreck when you're putting that much of a population in an already stressed provider network. So it seemed to me as a layperson that if you could leverage technology to increase capacity of providers and increase access for patients, it just made all the sense in the world. So started researching and doing some work with other telemedicine companies to try to understand the landscape. And what were you doing before that? Well, I've been in the restaurant business started uh, when Nancy and I first got married. I was uh, actually a retail merchandiser. I was buying men's clothes for a chain of retail stores, something I was egregiously unqualified to do. But I was introduced to NASCAR. And so we started a, a company in NASCAR. We represented some of the intellectual property, some of the drivers and team owners, got into kind of the souvenir business in the manufacturing and distribution of of things I used to tell, you know, Charlie used to tell her friends her dad was a bumper sticker salesman. That's what we did. So we did that for about 10 years and then took that company through an IPO, which was another area I was very unqualified for. But, you know, by the grace of God, we were able to, to, to successfully do that. So... Now, entrepreneurialism seems to be ever-present, like it's something that is talked about, kids are learning about when, when they're at school. How did you know that was an option growing up, that you could start your own business or businesses and sort of make a living for yourself that way? I was just never uh, satisfied. And I, I mean, you kind of go back to the tobacco fields, you know, you, you, you work hard on Friday and you get a cash money or work hard all week and you get cash money on Friday. And that concept of work, get paid, work more, get paid more, pick up a, a second job working in a restaurant. So now you're working harder, you're getting two checks. So my foray into employment working for other folks, I mean, I tried it twice. And I just didn't like someone else who was in control of my destiny, per se. So It's pretty amazing just to have that insight to go that that's an option. And what was your first ever venture? My first adventure was uh, a restaurant business. My father was uh, in the restaurant business, so I grew up and watched that, and I felt like it was something I knew pretty well. I had managed a couple of restaurants, like night manager type things. I mean, I was when I was very young, uh, seventeen, I was managing a restaurant, and after trying the, an, a career in employment, working in the construction business with a highway construction company, I just had the itch to start my own restaurant. 
so I did it against my parents' advice. They they told me to please don't do it. It's too hard a life and, you know, all the pitfalls and being a hard-headed kid, I didn't listen. So I went and, and bought a restaurant with $5,000. The guy looked at me and said, you know, I can't believe you had the audacity to come here and, and buy this three and offer, you know, $5,000 as a down payment to a $350,000 purchase price. But he said, I got to be honest with you, I like it that you had the guts to drive here and make me such a ridiculous offer, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so that's actually how, how I got into it. And, you know, for 10 months, it was awesome. But you know, at the end of 10 months, we just absolutely ran out of money and was dead broke when I walked out of there. So what were the main lessons you learned from that? I wasn't smart enough to do due diligence. I wasn't smart enough to, you know, I looked at the amount of business the restaurant was doing and I thought, well, geez, I know if we bring our concept in here, we can do way better than that. And we opened up and it was awesome for the first 90 days. And then things started drying up and we just couldn't figure out why and how our better concept wasn't doing better. But I went in one night and I found a box of tapes from the cash register, the receipts from the previous restaurant. And since it was about six blocks away from East Carolina University, looking at the tapes, I realized that they did probably 70% of their business between 1130 at night and four o'clock in the morning. Because obviously when the bars and the clubs closed up, you know, all the students hit the streets and they came and they were buying biscuits. And I just wasn't smart enough to do the, to do my homework to really learn what the opportunities and the risk were at that time. So it was, it, look, you know, hindsight being 2020, it was one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned. It is amazing. Just uh, the ability to sort of like look beyond sort of the obvious and see, oh, wow, like if, if I sort of dig in a little bit deeper, I'm going to find much more. The next question is around leadership. And how do you define leadership? That is a, a question that I, I get asked a lot uh, in various forums. And my answer is always the same. I, I think a good leader is someone who can compel people to do things that they may not necessarily want to do. Maybe they're afraid to do. It takes them out of their comfort zone. But if you can encourage them to do it, they actually find out that they can do so much more than they thought they could, and they enjoy it when they're doing it. So I, I think being able to take people out of their comfort zone and make them better and showing them the way is a good example of leadership. And what do you feel, so I guess building on that a little bit more, is what are some of the skills that make a good leader? So you're, 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 you're getting them to sort of get out of their comfort zone, but how do you go about getting them to do that? You know, I think back, again, as my father was in the restaurant business and something that he was constantly doing was, was out in the parking lot with a broom, sweeping around the outside, picking up trash that folks left behind. He was always doing something. And I think the thing I took away from that, because he was, an, in my view, he was an excellent leader because he led by example. And he, what he basically taught me was you can't ask someone else to do something that you're not willing or, and haven't done yourself. So I think leading by example, showing people how to do things with yourself is better than, than telling people how to do things. Yeah, it's interesting. I you say that I had this incredible supervisor when I was in Australia. I was working in this school called Sydney Grammar School, and she was a division head there. Became the head of school, and she had a very clear vision for what the school would be. But one of the things she did first day was get herself on the playground duty schedule, 
and she would be outside and just in especially summer in Australia, sort of around this time, actually, when we're recording this in February, and it'd be incredibly hot. She'd be out there, you know, interacting with the kids and people had just never seen it before. And it was just a, a terrific example to all of us that like she's willing to do whatever needs to be done. And then when I first became a school administrator, I did the same thing, just put myself on, on the playground schedule because I thought, or the like the, the morning duty schedule, whatever it may be, like d- dismissal or drop off. And and people are like, why are you doing that for? And it's just, it, but it, it tends, ends up being a great way to just connect with people, with sort of doing things that are sort of like the outside of the scope of what you normally do. And this year with COVID and not so many people are getting to come into the building is it's been a good way I do sort of morning and afternoon pick up on most days is I have these sort of conversations with people in like 30 second increments and sort of it adds up over time and eventually you get to know people. But it doesn't happen that often though, like people leading from example. And, and what's, I guess in, now in your current role, what are some of the things that you find yourself doing that would probably be easy to, I guess, not do? building COVID kits. Okay. Uh, I remember that, you know, we got into a business that didn't exist sort of overnight and it kind of became overwhelming. And I found myself many hours and at night actually assembling boxes. But that's just a prime example is you've got to ship out 2000 of these of COVID test kits in a, in an afternoon, you really don't have a choice. You know, you don't really have the staff. We, we weren't set up to do that. So I started doing it. And then I noticed all of my employees started doing it. So people were literally sitting at their desk building these boxes, you know, before we had a process set up to do it. So, you know, you just have to have a willingness to 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 really do whatever you got to do. You know, whatever the situation calls for, you just have to get in and do it. And how big is your current company? Like how many employees? Well, we have 440 physicians that are board certified in emergency medicine. And we have about somewhere around 35 other staff, like in our call center. The last year has seen great upheaval and change. Some have framed the onset of COVID pandemic as an accelerant, including the digitization of industries, including healthcare. I know you're in that sort of in advance. Can you tell us how you guided your company to be prepared to respond during the crisis? And and as part of that, I guess another part of that is just like, what's it been like for you to lead through the crisis? Well, I think the... The life of the entrepreneur is you can write all the business plans that, that, that you want, but when it comes to execution, they never work out the way that you think they're going to work out. And that's why if you've ever seen the little graph of a business plan, it's a very structured a structured plan, and you see the plan of an entrepreneur, what actually happens is a bunch of squiggly lines on a board because every day you're, you're faced with new challenges, and COVID was certainly one of those. Our primary business is facilitating work comp injury. So employees get injured, they call us, we connect them with an ER doc. Well, when the country started shutting down and, and employees were furloughed, we saw a, a substantial risk to our business because people not working, not getting hurt, it presented a huge obstacle for us. Uh, but one of the conversations we had with one of our clients were, you know, I've got to get my employees back. You know, how do I get my employees back to work safely? And that was sort of the light bulb that went off and said, oh, well, you know, maybe we need to screen them for COVID. So we immediately, uh, we actually own our own technology development firm. And so we challenged our uh, tech developers to come up with an artificial intelligence screening tool. And we did that on a Friday afternoon. And by Monday afternoon, we had an artificial intelligence COVID screening tool. These guys worked uh, around the clock 24-7 to try to get this up and running. 
we had it up and it was interesting to us. We, we laughed when the president was in the Rose Garden and he had uh, representatives from Google and they said they were going to deploy 1,700 engineers to create an artificial intelligence screener for COVID. And we're thinking, geez, ours has been up for three weeks now. When you're an entrepreneur and, and things don't go according to plan, you, you have to be willing to pivot. And that's what we did. And then the second step was, okay, we're going to screen it. You got COVID symptoms. What do we do next? Well, you got to test them. So how do we do that? And there you go. We're in the testing business. So can you talk a little bit about the screener, how that worked or how that how that does work? Well, it, it, it's, it's evolved from, from the very beginning. You know, if you recall in the beginning, there were three or four clearly identifiable symptoms. If you have COVID, you're going to have these things. And so the screening tool that we put up was just a series of progressive questions where, you know, one answer leads to another question. And we determine what your risk factors were in a stage one, stage two, uh, if you had the potential to have been exposed to COVID. And then that would direct you into a place where you could get tested. But then, uh, you know, the sad, th- the scary thing about the COVID-19 is, and you and I have discussed it several times, there's there's almost as much or more that we don't know about it than we do. And so we were constantly having to adjust it. And, you know, you finally get to the point, not herd immunity, but herd awareness. You get to herd awareness where pretty much everybody knows what the symptoms are and you don't really need that screener to know. So if you think you're experiencing it, then you go out and you get tested. And then talk about those, then the pivot to the testing as well. And, and what was that process like? A lot of trial and error, really over a three-week period. By the time we identified, we we actually had a contract with a company called LabCorp, which most everybody around here knows. We had a contract with them, and we were negotiating to get in on the on the COVID testing. And before we could even get started, they were already at capacity. And the one thing we learned is that one of the reasons they were at capacity and a shortage on on, on tests and materials where people were actually hoarding the test. So they would call and they would order it and they could put all these tests in a broom closet. And so they were, you know, supplies were scarce. And we thought at the time that it really was a capacity problem. And so we found a lab out in Texas that's a DNA uh, lab. They do high complexity tests and they had acquired an emergency use authorization. And so we went to them and, and made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. We basically said, here's what we'll do we'll pay for all the tests up front. So we're going to buy capacity. So if we pay for the test up front, we're basically guaranteeing you that we're not going to hoard them and our clients aren't going to hoard them. If we take them, we're going to run them. And that worked out very well. So even to this day, we still have 24-hour turnaround on the test, which is critically important in the battle to get those results as quick as possible. So they were you know, kind of a smaller company in, in the space. So we were able to be a really important client. And it's actually blossomed into a you know, multifaceted relationship beyond COVID at this point. And, and how's it evolved? Uh, well, they do a lot of uh, specialty high complexity tests. And the, the one thing we learned about COVID is, you know, the test we prefer is, is an in-home test. We can ship it directly to your door. Or, you know, if you have an employee, you can hand it to them and they can, you know, take it home if they're exp- uh, ha- having symptoms. And so we found that there are a lot of tests that are available to folks that they can take at home. Everything from UTI testing, STI testing, colon cancer screening and testing. Then we got exposed to at-home sleep apnea testing. So we started a new medical practice group. Now we're, we're bringing on physicians that are uh, certified in sleep medicine. It just opened up a whole new frontier for us to do, really to bring medical care to more folks at home. A, a lot of the folks who are 
you know, apprehensive about going out and going to see a doctor anyway, but they, but they still need the medical care. And when you see a new opportunity, how do you begin to map that out? Like the complexity, I imagine, is quite great. Like you see there's, oh, there's a space, I can feel that, I have these current resources at my company. But then to start thinking, this is how I'm getting uh, the first few steps, but I imagine the end point, how you're going to get there is relatively unclear. Well, if you start thinking about it too much, you may not do it. <laughs> so uh, we don't we don't put a lot of academic thought into it because my philosophy has always been: if you think about it too much and you put too much much of it on paper, it may frighten you away from it. You know, you just do it. I mean, you see it, and then there's a there's an opportunity. And one of the things I've always been proud to do is to talk to people that are far smarter than me. And so one of the first things we did was started reaching out to every physician we could find who was certified in sleep medicine and say, hey, you know what, you know, there's new technology that came out of Denmark that it's a little device you put on your finger or you can put it on your wrist to do a pretty highly sophisticated sleep apnea test. What if we could do this? Do you think it makes sense or not? And nine out of 10 physicians said, I think that's a fabulous idea and I'd love to participate. So that's sort of the validation we look for. So what's your approach then to sort of goal setting? Like if you're, you know, often businesses have these sort of like sort of clear metrics they're trying to hit, like they have these measures. And when you're able to move so quickly and, and pivot and start new new ventures, how do you sort of gauge success of them? Like say it's the sleep apnea one, you've, you've noticed this hole in the market or, and you, you go that direction. How do you determine if it's a, if it's a success? Well, you know, for us, you've got to determine how much money you're willing to lose on it. So you, that's the first thought that comes in. How much you how much you're willing to risk to make this happen? The second thing you have to learn, and which was very difficult for me going back to the you know restaurant business, is you have to truly be honest with yourself. And most good ideas, you know, pretty quickly if they're going to work or not. If you see it's not working, then you've got to step in and adjust. Maybe try a different approach. But if you try that different approach and you're just not seeing it, you have to be honest with yourself and you just can't be afraid to pull the plug. If it's not working, you just admit, hey, this isn't going to work. And I, I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs and different little kind of incubator systems that they work in. And that's one of the things we tell them, like, look, you can't be too married to your own idea because every idea is not great. I imagine that is very hard for people because of the amount of sort of emotional investment at times, like the amount of time that goes in and then to say, oh, well, this is not working them out. How do you sort of maintain that detachment? Is it just experience? I don't know a substitute for experience. And it, it's, it, you know, it's a fine line. If you look back to the, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world that, you know, they just had a dream and a passion and they had a, and an idea that, you know, truly was thinking differently. And they're just absolutely so passionately committed that they know it's the right thing to do. Those guys are awesome. But you still, somewhere in the back of your mind, you have to have that little voice that you're honest. That you have to be honest with yourself. If it's just not working, you just got to be you know, man or woman enough to say that this isn't working. And the same thing I tell any of these guys is that, hey, just because this idea didn't work doesn't mean the next one won't. You know, I've had the, you know, I've had epic failures too, but sometimes the failures are the best lessons that, that you learn. When 
you know, students are going through school and the stakes seem so, so high. And if you know, if you get a failing grade or something. And so this fear of failure really becomes prevalent in young people. Yet then when we get them, when they get out into the workplace or even through college and then out in the workplace, they have to sort of let go. We have to let go of that fear and be willing to take risks. How do, if you get young people who who you're employing and they are a little bit more uptight around like failing and not not willing to, you know, try things that are out of their comfort zone, like how do you help them through that? Sometimes it's okay to to have a comfort zone. There are some folks that they're just, they're geared, you know, they want to work nine to five and they, they want to know what their hourly pay is or what their, you know, their weekly or their annual pay is. And that's what they, they want to do. They want to work nine to five and they want to put food on the table. They want to be able to have fun. And that's okay. And, and we, one thing that we tell every single person that we hire is we tell them, this is what your job is. This is how much I'm going to pay you. And you can work 40 hours a week. And if that's where you want to be, that's awesome. That's great. We, we fully support that. But at the end of the year, we're pretty much square. I got what I wanted. You got what you wanted. We're square. But for the folks that want to do more, for the folks that are self-motivated to do more than they're asked to do, then with me, they're making bank. They're banking up goodwill for me because they're showing that, hey, it's one minute to five and my phone rang, but I'm going to go ahead and take this call and maybe I'm going to be here for 30 or 45 minutes to wrap this up. You know, those people that are willing to do that are the ones that we see that move up faster and, and do better. But never want to diminish the person who that's okay. You know, this is what I want to do because maybe they're learning to play the piano or maybe they're learning to play the saxophone or maybe they're trying to get better at golf or racquetball and that's a passion that they're pursuing and they you, or, or some other hobby that it takes a lot of dedicated time to do. That's okay. It's my understanding that you're testing quite large organizations now. Is that right? We are, yes. And so what's the process of that? Do you send you send the kits out to them? They distribute them and then they mail them to the lab? Well, it, it's a little bit of both. The biggest challenge for a lot of large employers is really the economics. And the economics of testing 20,000 employees on a regular basis is significant. So we have, we have several different options. We tend to stay away from the rapid test. I mean, they're okay, but you know, they're 47% of the time they're wrong. There's some other technologies that are coming on now that, are, that look more promising as far as the sensitivity and the accuracy. But we can actually do bulk testing where we can have employees run through a line and they take the test and we put them all in a big box and ship them. We have a strategy called pool testing where you take a, a group of folks and you combine those specimens. And so if you if, if you imagine, if you have 100 employees, you imagine taking 10 samples of 10 employees and you run them all together and then the ones that test positive, then you come and test all those people individually. There are some tests we run, which is an antigen test. And this one lab out in California has accumulated a lot of DNA data from the CDC and they've identified certain markers in those antigen tests that that can identify a percentage of population that would most likely produce a false negative. And so then we come back and test those with a PCR test. So there, there are lots of different options. And we have some who just know, you know, the PCR test is the one that if there's any COVID, any trace of COVID in your body, even dead COVID cells, this test picks it up. And, and we, tend to, we tend to push that test harder. You know, it's, it's expensive, but there's a high degree of certainty in decision-making with that test. And... What have you learned about leading through a crisis through this whole experience? 
when I was a kid and we used to take our cars out on the dirt road and we would put those cars in a power slide. So you're somewhat in control, but distill the cars a little bit loose in, in the, the dirt and gravel. But the biggest thing is you have to stay focused on what your core mission is. You can't panic. You have to know in your heart that you keep doing the right thing. It's going to be okay. And you let the folks around you know that it's going to be okay. And you let your clients know that it's going to be okay. And then you, you sort of hold on. But you've got you've to stay focused even when you pivot to, to a new area. You've got to stay focused 100% of the time because it, every day is a different challenge. And through all that, like it's a lot of pressure on leaders. Like how have you managed yourself through that? Like there's a ton of pressure when you were saying before, like you, you're looking at your business and the, the landscape's changing. You're having to change very quickly. All these people are relying on you. Your family's relying on you. All these other families that you're, your employees and their families are relying on you. How did you, through those, really imagine initially those really tough times, take care of yourself? You know, it's certainly easier when you're older. You know, having gone through difficult and challenging times before, and you know that you're always going to come out on the other side, you, you tend to value your health and your happiness and that of your family more so than you do, you know, a, a business. Uh, it's just a, a sort of a different outlook. But I think it's just less stress when you know everything is going to be okay. You know, it may not be the way you wanted it to be. It may not be as great as you wanted it to be, but you know it's going to be okay. So for me, about five or six years ago, I had someone mention to me about a calendar and they said, hey, if I don't put this on my calendar, it doesn't get done. Well, I don't even have a calendar because you just wake up and you tackle every day. And so I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to get a calendar. And, and the first thing I'm going to put on there is every Friday I'm going to go play golf. So at noon every Friday for five years running, I went in 52 weeks a year and I scratched it out in golf. And so my clients and my employees learn very quickly that if you need anything from me, you can get it 24 hours a day, you know, six and a half days a week. But from noon on Friday till about eight o'clock, I was going to be unavailable. And, and I think that was one of the best things I ever did because I made myself stop just for that, that brief time. And so during COVID, it's obviously been a little more difficult, but I still try to adhere to that as much as possible. Yeah, that's a, it is a very difficult thing to do is just that a ability to switch off, even though it's what you need to be able to be more effective most of the rest of the time. And your daughter, Charlie, is working for you. What's that like, having your, one of your children as an employee? Well, when I started working for my dad, he was very demanding. And, and, and I didn't really like it. I thought he was too hard on me. And sometimes I feel like I'm a little, I can be a little demanding too. Uh, just, just because I want everything we do, we just have to do it right. That's all I care about. Just have to do it right. And even if you do it wrong, as long as you're trying to do it right, then we're going to learn and do better. So, you know, Charlie's in graduate school. She had a job that she was doing very well in, and she got laid off from that job because of COVID. And my wife Nancy suggested that we bring Charlie to work for us part time. And I was, you know, my initial thought was, I'm not, you know, how this is going to work out. You know, it's you know, bringing another member member of the family, and we're in this pandemic, and and I, I, ha I have to tell you, and I'm I'm a proud father to tell anyone who's listening, she's really turned out to be one of my one of the best employees I've ever had. It's just a person that I can I can count on. 
When we started the testing program, she was really instrumental in setting it up, and she actually administrates the entire program now, coordinates with the doctors, coordinates with the lab, coordinates with following up with the patients. Just one of the most gratifying surprises of my entire life, how well she is doing there, how much she's contributed to the success of the company. So I'd have to give a shout out to Davidson Day that, uh, you know, you guys obviously had a lot, uh, a lot to do with that. So she turned out to be a very smart girl. And I've got to know Cameron a little bit, and she just is a remarkable human being as well. And so my question is putting you on the spot a little bit, but you've raised these two amazing daughters. What do you think the the key is raising, I'm going to say, all children, but like, what do you think the key is sort of raising strong young women? Well, I guess I'd have to give a lot of credit to my wife. My wife is a pretty pretty amazing person, and, and she's actually been working with me for 27 years. Uh, she's our CFO and has done an amazing job. She has really been instrumental in everything that, that we've done. And one brief period, she uh, she wasn't involved in a venture, and that's really one of the only ones that got really sideways because she wasn't there. You know, but, but I think, again, just being an, an example for your, for your children, and I remember one time several years ago, Cameron made the honor roll, and, and she didn't make the headmaster list, and she really took it personally. She just made up her mind that I, this is never going to happen again. And so the dedication and the hard work, you know, again, to, to see your, your, your children that are so committed. I remember my mom coming in, you know, trying to beat me over the head every morning, trying to drag me out of bed to you know, not be late for school. And I don't recall ever waking up either one of my daughters to get ready to go to school, which is amazing to me. So hopefully my work ethic has played a, a little bit a, a part in their life, but also being available to them and, and, and having the willingness to listen to them. And, and I had one of the greatest lessons that uh, someone taught me before is about young girls is they go through a lot of things when they're at school and they feel certain things. And you have to be careful with your words when you're talking to them because it's okay to feel that way. You know, you can't say, well, you shouldn't feel that way or that's ridiculous. You shouldn't feel that way. You have to sort of acknowledge that. And it's challenging raising girls. Uh, my wife would say I'm not the most sensitive person on the planet, which I have no idea where that comes from. But I'm, I'm very proud of, of the work ethic in both of them. And, and I honestly think that the school systems that we've been involved in, including Davidson Dave, just had a lot to do with that. Yeah. It's really important. I've been, I've got a, uh, I've been reading a, a lot more recently about just raising little kids, right? I had, I had my eldest was very uh, sort of obedience, probably the wrong word, but like she was just did everything we asked. She was an only child for six years too, right? And so she basically had two parents like there all the time. And then we had our little one and she's just a little bit more rambunctious. And so I've just been learning a little bit more about how to manage uh, high energy, sort of big feelings, young people. And one of the things they, they keep on saying, these sort of um, child rearing experts is validate the feelings. It's okay to feel that way. Like when she's melting down and having a tantrum, it's just like, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad, you know, and just it's been, so rather than sometimes you want to close it down and say, it's not okay to be that way. So you're also on the advisory board of Shelters to Shutters, an organization that helps those experiencing situational homelessness. What lessons of leadership have you learned through serving the community in this way? I think the, the first thing that, that drew me to Shelters of, of Shutters was the, the concept of giving a helping hand up and not necessarily a hand out. 
And that's something that has always been important to me. The thing that I didn't really have an appreciation for at the time is the situational homeless. You have a lot of folks who they're just doing the right thing. They're trying hard. Heart's in the right place. And circumstances come into their lives that are beyond their control. And it's so difficult for them to comprehend what happened and how it happened. And that the, the more I've gotten involved with that and, and some of the success, success stories that Shelters to Shutters have, and, and I think it's important for folks who don't know what that is, it's, it's helping people find an apartment and finding them a job at the apartment complex, uh, be it you know, maintenance or in the office or whatever it is. A lot of the situational homeless folks, they have a certain skill set, but you train them and so you really take them and you, you give them a job and a home. And that, that was meaningful to me. And so, you know, it's, I'm, it's still a learning process for me. When I was first contacted about bringing shelters to shutters to the Charlotte area about a, a year and a half ago, we were just putting the advisory board together. And, you know, COVID hit. And being a, uh, being a new charitable organization uh, with no legacy in a city as great as Charlotte is, it's just hard to get recognition for that. But, but we're gaining ground. Uh, we're finding partners. Uh, we're finding lead sources you know, to, to identify those folks who need help. We've put together a pretty incredible board, and we just had a meeting to sort of rededicate ourselves to not let COVID beat us down in 2021 is to do things. And so I'm excited about 2021. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? There's a book called Winning Through Intimidation. It's by Robert J. Ringer. It was written back in the 70s. I've read the book probably five times. It has nothing to do with intimidation at all, so I don't know where the, you know, where the title came from. But the, the thing I like about that book, and I'll share it with anybody anytime, is it really causes you to see the world in eyes wide open. And there's great analogies in there about the, the types of people that you deal with throughout your life. But it's just a, a real world, honest exposure to how the world works. And how did you come across the book? Wow, that's a great question. I honestly don't remember. I, somewhere I picked it up, and the very first time I picked it up, I read it all the way through. And I was like, holy cow. And I went right back to the front. And I read the book. I read it through again. And if the original copy that I had, you know, I made notes in the margins and I was highlighting it. And I loaned it to a friend who lost it. Oh. And it was very, it was really hard for me, you know, struggle to go out and find another copy of it. But I, I just think for, I mean, for young people, I think that's just, a, that's just a great book to read. Yeah, thanks. You mentioned golf. And what are some other things you love doing in your free time? Well, I like boating. I used to fish a lot. We lived down at Wrightsville Beach a long time ago before we moved to Charlotte with the, with the NASCAR business. So I recently bought a fishing boat. I've gone out. I've bought all the rods and tackles. So I've got great aspirations of, of starting to fish again. I don't know when that'll be. But, but we, we enjoy boating on, on Lake Norman. I'm, I'm more, of a, more of a salty at heart, but enjoy that. And if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? Throughout my life, I've played a little bit of a lot of musical instruments. Never got really good on any of them, but I, you know, I think a skill that I'd like to have is, is I'd really like to learn to play the piano proficiently instead of banging on chords. And I don't have an excuse for not doing it, but, but I want to do that. 
And did you play piano as a kid? Is that how you first started learning it? That was the last one. My first instrument was a set of drums. I'm sorry, my first instrument was a guitar. Then I got a set of drums, and I played the flute in the band. I played a saxophone in the band. I played the trumpet in a band. I played a French horn. And I literally learned how to play, you know, one or two songs on every instrument. <laughs> but I never got really good at any of them. The one I regret, and Cameron, if you're listening, I'm saying the same thing to you, is I regret giving up the saxophone. That was a great instrument. Yeah, I'm also love the piano. I had lessons in my late teens, early 20s, and got it to a certain point and then stopped. But when people, you know, there's a piano there and they just sort of sidle up to it and they just start playing, I'm always very, very jealous. In the last five years, what new belief, habit, or behavior has most improved your life? I think as you get older, you you become aware that life is finite. You know, it's not going to go on forever. And so you you sort of start thinking in the back of your mind how much longer you're going to be here. And, you know, for that reason, and I have the I have the lo- little bit of a luxury in business now, when I play golf, I want to play golf with the folks that I enjoy being with. I want to play with positive folks who enjoy life, who make you feel better about yourself. In business, when we do business with folks, I want to do business with folks that we like. And occasionally we run across a company that, you know, we start entering into a relationship and you get that feeling that, you know, it's just not going to work for whatever reason is you, you just got to walk away from it. So I think being able to, to, to pick and choose the, the people, the places, the business opportunities that, that you really feel like add value to your life and, and, and make you a better person. And, and, and hopefully, you know, it's a two-way street. What advice would you give to someone looking to pursue a career similar to yours? Oh, don't do it. <laughs> no, no. You know, I mean, that, 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 that's really a, a tough one. And, I, and I, I would say that if you, if you want to go down the path, you know, that I've been down, once again, you've you got to have an honest assessment. And you've got to, you know, one of my favorite quotes was in the, from the, the book In Pursuit of Happiness. And, you know, Will Smith was, was in that. And he made a comment. He said, the Calvary ain't coming. And so, yeah, if you go down the, the path of a, uh, as an entrepreneur and you want to be the leader and you want to own your own company, you have to understand that the Calvary ain't coming. The only person who's going to be there to pick you up if you fall down really is yourself. And so you have to be confident enough to know that when you get knocked down, and you will, you have to have the fortitude to get yourself up. And, and listen, if you fail, that's okay. I mean, Albert Einstein was the greatest example of that. You know, failure is one step closer to success. And, and you truly have to have that mentality. And that's what I tell some people. Uh, you know, some people, they it's okay. You know, go get a job and work for a company that has great benefits and an excellent retirement program and, and work there for, for 30 years, which really doesn't happen too often these days. But, but if that's the path you choose, I think that's great. But the other way is hard. You just got to be prepared to do it. But, it. but it can be very rewarding. And that's the hardest thing, I think, as we're so raising kids, and whether that be at home or here at the school, is just helping them realize is that they will get knocked down on the canvas and you do have the internal strength to get back up. And because sometimes I think many people question, and especially young people, is whether they do have the strength. And then when they do you know, experience a knockback and you know, go through the heartbreak and then they eventually do you know, get on their hands and knees and step back up in the ring and they're like, oh, okay, I did this, I can go again. But it, it is hard. And the final question is, what inspires you? People inspire me. The success of people, whatever that is, uh, you know, the person who... A good friend of mine was stricken with leukemia. He was in 
you know, Duke Hospital for six or seven months with, they gave him a six to 10% chance to live. And, he, you know, he made it. And he's one of my, one of my best golfing buddies now, just an absolute wonderful human being. But people who are successful, I have another friend who had started a little company and, you know, sold it for a substantial amount of money or the people who go and, and defend our country in, in, in foreign countries, you know, who give their life and the families and their sacrifice. So, you know, people that are people that are willing to overcome circumstances in their life, you know, whatever they may be, big, big or small, I mean, those are the folks that, those are the type of things that, that inspire me is just, you know, is the, is the perseverance and and the gratitude that comes with, uh, with overcoming circumstances. What a great way to end the conversation. Randy, thanks so much for all your time. You've been very generous throughout the year and, and carving out the time in your day to do this as well. And I'm deeply appreciative. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you. It's great. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.